Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in this connection, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 as we read the verses 1 through 8. Hear God's holy word. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Dear friends, last week we began a series of sermons on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And at that time we considered the background to the letter, specifically how the church at Philippi was founded. And we saw that the church at Philippi was founded, first of all, by the sovereign direction of the Spirit of God. Christ, through his Spirit, prevented Paul, Timothy, and Silas from preaching the gospel in Asia and in Bithynia, directing them instead by means of a vision to go to Macedonia and to preach the gospel there. Secondly, this church was founded by the mighty power of the word of God. And we saw that it was through the preaching of the word that Christ gathered the church at Philippi. It was through the preaching of the word that first Lydia and then the demon-possessed slave girl and then finally, the jailer came to faith in Christ. And thirdly, this church was founded by the faithful nurture of the servants of God. And there we, we learned that after coming to faith in Christ, Paul and his companions visited the homes of Lydia and the jailer where they preached to them and baptized them and then left Luke behind in order to nurture them in the faith. Well, today, with God's help, we want to take a closer look at the letter itself. And more specifically, we want to consider what this letter reveals to us about the church at Philippi. What kind of church was this? What were some of the circumstances behind this letter? And what lessons can we learn from this? We're not going to choose a specific text uh, from any part of Paul's letter to the Philippians today. Instead, we're going to look at various texts scattered throughout this epistle so that we can form some kind of an idea of what was going on when Paul was writing this letter. So my theme is the church at Christ at Philippi. And we'll consider, first of all, her characteristics, and secondly, her challenges, and thirdly, her confidence. First then, 
her characteristics. Paul's letter to the Philippians tells us much about the church at Philippi. The first thing we learn is that it was an obedient church. In chapter 2, verse 12, we read these words. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul here acknowledges that the church at Philippi was an obedient church. Now you say, obedient to whom? Well, not in the first place to the Apostle Paul, although they were obedient to him as well, but rather to God. They obeyed God by obeying his word. Whatever God commanded in his word, that's what the Philippians did. And what is more, they did so, as Paul himself also acknowledges, not just when Paul was present, but even more so when he was not in his absence. Secondly, we learned that this church was a faithful church. In Philippians 2, verse 14 and 15, Paul writes this, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Paul here acknowledges that the Philippians shone as lights in the world. Now you notice this isn't a prayer. Paul doesn't say, I pray that you might shine as light in the world. No, it's an acknowledgement of fact. They did shine as lights in the world. So wherever they went and whatever they did, they shone as lights in the world. Now what does that mean, to shine as a light in the world? Well, it means basically to live out your Christianity in every area of your life. This world in which we live is a world full of darkness, the darkness of sin. But when believers live as they ought to live in accordance with the commandments of Christ, then they will shine as lights in the world. And this is exactly how our Lord wants us to live. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then he says this, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, the Philippians were good examples of this. They shone, as Paul says, as lights in the world. My friend, does that describe you today? Are you shining as a light in this world? You know, when we shine as lights in the world, we may be used as instruments in drawing others to Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on Philippians, remarks that when we are children, we used to sing, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. And then he adds this comment, and I quote, Christians who are lights shining in this world's darkness will make others ask similar questions. They'll wonder what makes us different. Why do we have such peace and love and joy? And the answer, of course, is Christ. And by observing how we live, others may be drawn to him like insects are drawn to a light in the middle of the night. Well, such was the church at Philippi. It consisted of people who let their light shine. The third thing we learn about this church was that it was a caring church. And that's the quality that receives a lot of attention in this letter. The church of Philippi was a very caring church. And that's illustrated in how the church cared specifically for the Apostle Paul. 
Now it's clear from chapter 1 of this epistle that the apostle wrote this letter from prison. And we know that because several times in this chapter, Paul speaks of chains and himself as being in bonds. We read of that in verse 7 and verse 13 and 14 and then again in verse 16. Now, where Paul was imprisoned is not entirely clear. Some say he was in prison in Caesarea, but others say he was in prison in Ephesus. But it's more likely that he was in prison in Rome. And that's mainly, though not entirely, because in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul makes reference to the palace guard, which can also be translated as the praetorium, which would be then a reference to the imperial guard which would have been stationed at Rome at that time. Also, in chapter 4, verse 22, Paul conveys greetings from all the saints, but especially to those who are of Caesar's household. Now, this would have included the servants of Caesar, who would have served in the emperor's palace in Rome. And so it's likely, then, that Paul wrote this letter from that city. He wrote it while he was in prison in Rome. Well, if that is indeed the case, then it's perhaps better to say that Paul was imprisoned rather than in prison. And that's because, according to Acts 28 and verses 16 and 30, Paul was actually placed under some form of house arrest. He wasn't free to go as he pleased. He would have been shackled to a soldier day and night. But he lived in his own rented home, probably close to Caesar's palace. And he was allowed to receive visitors, which explains why Paul had such extensive contact with the members of Caesar's household and why he could receive Epaphroditus into his home, as we read about later on in this epistle. Well, whatever the case, upon hearing that Paul was imprisoned, the church at Philippi, concerned for his welfare, immediately proceeded to take up a collection for his support. And what is more, they sent Epaphroditus a leading figure of the congregation, to travel all the way to Rome to deliver their gift and to inquire after his well-being. We read of that in chapter 2, verse 25, and chapter 4, verse 18. Well, when Paul received this gift, he was overjoyed. In Philippians 4, verse 18, Paul speaks of this gift as a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And with that gift, Paul could purchase some much-needed necessities, some extra food, some clothing, perhaps some medication, whatever else he needed. It was a beautiful expression of their love for him. But this was not the only time the Philippians ministered to Paul in this way. According to chapter 4, verse 16, the Philippians sent another gift to Paul shortly after he departed from Philippi and went to Thessalonica. They ministered to him again while he was in Corinth. And what's especially striking about this is that every gift that the Philippians sent, Paul accepted it. Now this by way of contrast to gifts he received from Corinth. While he was in Corinth, Paul refused to accept any remuneration for his services. And he did that because he didn't want anyone in Corinth to accuse him of living off of the avails of others and thus hinder the spread of the gospel. But he had no problem accepting gifts from the Philippians. Why not? Because he knew that they would never hold it against him, as some might have done in Corinth. 
And that only goes to illustrate the deep bond of love that existed between the Apostle Paul and this congregation. The point is, the congregation of Philippi cared much for Paul, and he in turn cared much for them. Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul gave thanks for them. In verse 7, he says he had them in his heart. In verse 8, he says he longed to see them. Chapter 2, verse 12, he called them his beloved. Chapter 4, verse 1, he called them his dearly beloved and longed for his joy and crown. And what is more, he visited them often. Once on his second missionary journey and twice on his third missionary journey. Well, this was the congregation of Philippi. They loved Paul and he loved them in return. So this was a very caring church. But it was a church that also faced significant challenges. And that brings us to our second point. Like every church, the church at Philippi faced significant challenges. And when we glean through the epistle, three challenges come to the surface. The first is the challenge of false teachers. Several times in this epistle, we read about false teachers. The first time is in chapter 3, verse 2. And there Paul warns against dogs and evil workers and the mutilation. Now Paul here is likely referring to the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Christians who taught that in order to be saved, one not only had to believe in Christ, one also had to keep the law of Moses. In particular, one had to be circumcised. But as Paul taught in Galatians, this was an attack on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It was to say that faith in Christ is not enough. To put our, to our faith, they would say, we must add certain works. We must add our obedience to the law and our circumcision in order to be saved. And Paul understandably had no tolerance for that kind of teaching or for those who taught it. And that's why he denounced them with these words, dogs and evil workers, because that's exactly what they were. And Paul wasn't afraid to say so. The second time that Paul refers to false teachers is in chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. And there Paul writes, even weeping, he says, that there were many who were the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Now, Here again, Paul was denouncing false teachers. What they taught, Paul doesn't specify. The fact that some of them made their belly their God implies that they were hedonists, people who pursued pleasure at all costs. Whatever the case, they didn't teach the truth. They were imposters. And therefore, Paul denounced them using very strong language. Now, as an aside, I have met people, and perhaps you have too, who feel very uneasy when you denounce certain false teachers and their teaching. That's unloving, they say. We should just all try to get along with each other. Now, to be sure, we don't want our ministers forever fulminating against this or that heresy or false teaching, much less take pot shots at other Christians and denominations. But from time to time, error must be publicly identified and denounced, as Paul also demonstrates here in this letter. 
The second challenge that was facing this congregation is persecution. It's clear from this letter that the congregation of Philippi was being persecuted. And that's clear from chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. There Paul writes these words, Only let your conduct, he says, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So Paul here speaks of the adversaries of the church at Philippi. These are enemies of the church, seeking to attack the church and even to destroy the church. And over and against these attacks, Paul exhorts the believers at Philippi to stand fast and to strive together for the faith of the gospel, reminding them that it is a privilege to suffer for the Lord's sake. The point is, the congregation of Philippi was being persecuted. And how difficult that must have been for them. After all, they were still such a young church. Most of them had only recently come to faith in Christ. But already, so soon after embarking on their journey of faith, they were made to suffer for his sake. And we're reminded here that whatever the Lord is at work, the devil is at work as well. While the Lord is seeking to gather, the devil is seeking to scatter. While the Lord is seeking to build up, the devil is seeking to tear down. And my friends, it's no different today. It's a well-known fact that Christians today are the most persecuted religious group in the entire world. According to an Italian study published in 2016, a Christian is killed for his or her faith every six minutes. In the same year, the Pew Research Report found that Christians were targeted in 144 countries, and that's up from 125 in 2015, just a year before. In 2019, Open Doors, a Christian NGO focusing on persecution of Christians, revealed that within five years, the number of countries classified as demonstrating extreme persecution went from one, which was North Korea, to 11. And what's especially shocking and disheartening is that our political leaders are saying nothing about this. And they're very quick to decry atrocities against Muslims and gays and lesbians and transgendered and indigenous persons. But Christians who founded this nation and gave shape to its laws and to its freedoms are completely ignored. But beloved, this is exactly what we are to expect. And the closer we get to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more persecuted Christians will become. And we need to be aware of this and prepare for it. A third challenge that was facing this congregation was disunity. Not only were there attacks against the church from without, there were also attacks from within. There were members of this congregation who were at odds with each other. 
Philippians 2 verse 2, Paul exhorts the Philippians to be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then in verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And verse 4, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so it's clear from these verses that although the congregation of Philippi loved Paul, they did not always love one another. At times they were even at odds with one another. And that was especially true of two prominent women in this congregation. Their names are mentioned in this epistle, Yodius and Syntyche. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, I implore Yodius and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, why these two women were at odds with each other, we don't know. But the fact that Paul addressed them publicly in this letter implies that the whole congregation was aware of it, and it was affecting all of them. And Paul knew this, and so he exhorted them to be on the same mind in the Lord. The point is, dear friends, this congregation had many challenges. There was the challenge of false teachers. There was the challenge of persecution. There was the challenge of disunity. And the challenges were so great, in fact, that the leaders of the church asked Paul, through Epaphroditus, to send Timothy to help them. And we read of that in chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. And so it will always be. During this period of time in which we live before the Lord comes, the church on earth will always be the church militant. It will always have to deal with challenges, challenges to her faith, challenges to challenges against worldliness, challenges against false teachers. There will always be these challenges for the church. And yet in spite of this, this congregation of Philippi continued and even flourished. And why is that? Well, that brings us to our third and final point. The church at Philippi, despite the challenges that faced her, continued and flourished for one reason and one reason only, and that was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Christ was the one who gathered this church, and we saw how we did that last time by the preaching of the apostles. First, the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to receive his word. And then he gave power to Paul to cast the unclean spirit out of the slave girl. And then he caused an earthquake, which led to the conversion of the jailer. And later, the members of both Lydia's and the jailer's household believed and, and, and their household, and they were all baptized. And before long, others were added to their number. So that at the end of Acts 16... We read that after they were released from prison by the magistrates of Philippi, they entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. You notice the word brethren there. By this time, there was an identifiable group of people that constituted the church of Christ at Philippi. Well, this same Christ, who had gathered these people together, was also preserving and defending them as he had promised. Prior to his ascension into heaven, Jesus said to his disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And my friends, he was. And that's why, despite great challenges, this church at Philippi survived and even flourished for many centuries. 
It's because Christ, her head, was preserving her for his glory. Paul even seems to allude to this in chapter 1, verse 6. And thereafter, thanking God for them and assuring them of his prayers, Paul expresses his confidence, and I quote, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And how comforting those words must have been for the church at Philippi. They were a very small and young church, probably just a few dozen people. And what's more, they were facing great challenges. But Paul was confident that Christ would not let them go. He would preserve them. He would defend them. And eventually, he would bring them home to himself. And because of this, they had nothing to fear. My friends, neither do we. For the Savior who gathered, defended, and preserved the church at Philippi is the same Savior who gathers, defends, and preserves his church still today. And that means we have nothing to fear. Although the church today may seem very small and very insignificant and without much influence, the torch of the gospel which she holds will never, ever be extinguished. On the contrary, it will shine brightly, if not here in North America, then in other parts of the world, as it is in places like China and in Africa. To be sure, the devil is a vicious enemy. But remember, he is bound. Like a junkyard dog on a chain, he can do much damage within the circle of the chain, but he cannot do whatever he pleases. And one day he will be thrown into the bottomless pit, never again to attack the people of God. Therefore, dear friends, let us not be afraid. We have a Savior in heaven who has everything under his control. And no matter how dark things may get, he is accomplishing his purposes. He will work all things out for our salvation and the glory of his name. And so we've considered this today, the church of Christ at Philippi. And we've seen some of her characteristics. She was obedient, she was faithful, and she was caring. We've seen some of her challenges, the challenge of false teachers, the challenge of persecution, and the challenge of disunity. And we've also considered her confidence, Christ and Christ alone. My friends, is that also our confidence? You know, we're not unlike the church at Philippi in many respects. Churches largely small and weak and insignificant, as I've already said. But if our confidence is in Christ, then we have nothing to fear. Then every challenge, every obstacle, every difficulty can and will be overcome. For he is our great and mighty and victorious king. By his death and his resurrection, he has purchased a church to himself. And one day, he will bring this church to himself. And she shall live and reign with him forever. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth. 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at frcna.org. That's banneroftruth 
at frcna.org. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed on your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can make a donation right on our webpage. Our webpage, again, is banneroftruthradio.com. Thank you for listening, and now, until next week, may the Lord be with you all.